0: morning, church. What a beautiful way to start our attention to God's word this morning. Uh, now, you may have noticed, usually we have a different form to our worship services. Usually, before I get up to preach, someone has read a passage of the Bible, and once they're done reading it, they usually say, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds, thanks be to God, right? And that, that's a little bit of liturgy that we have a pattern to our worship, a little form that reminds us of the authority of God's word and that we are to be hearers and doers of that word, that we're to be humble and contrite to tremble at God's word. I hope all those things are true of us this morning. And yet I've broken our pattern very intentionally. When we were planning this service, I intentionally made sure we did not have someone read scripture. We did not say those words. Because as we're working through John's gospel, we have come to a passage, sometimes called the woman caught in adultery, the pericope adultery, that I'm convinced is not original to John's gospel, and so that I do not believe is actually part of the Bible. So I can't stand up in front of you this morning and say, thus saith the Lord from a passage that we would read. Now, I realize I just raised a million questions in everyone's mind, so don't worry. We're going to deal with them. In fact, this morning, I'm going to take this occasion for us to look at the reliability, the trustworthiness of God's word with a special eye towards this beloved story about Jesus. I, I do think it's a true story about Jesus. I'll explain why. Even as I think, as best we can tell, it is not original to John's gospel, but that does not undermine the truth That God's word is trustworthy and reliable and all that a Christian needs to live a life of godliness. So this morning, that's what we're going to turn our attention to. How you can know that the New Testament is reliable and how you can find grace and mercy in Jesus through that trustworthy word. Now, I realize I have bitten off quite a bit there. We're going to try and chew it together. So let's ask the Lord's blessing together. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, there are many things in this life that are difficult to understand. Even some things in your word that are difficult for us to understand. And yet, Father, you have given within your word all we need to know you and to know your will for us. Would you use this morning to build confidence in the firm foundation of your word within us? Will you give me clarity of speech to communicate how we got the Bible, why it's so reliable, and what it shows us about Jesus? when we leave this place more convinced than ever that we can know what you have said to us and that you are a good God for speaking to your people? Thank you for your good word, and thank you for preserving it. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you grew up in a youth group, you probably know what a sword drill is. I was a youth pastor before I got called out here, and so I would pretty often do a sword drill. If you're not in the know a sword drill is a game to see who can flip open to a particular verse in the Bible the fastest. So I would say sword drill and everyone get their Bibles out. And by the way, I had to disqualify anyone that tried to use a phone or an iPad or something, way too fast. You just type it in, it comes right up. Um, but w- w- you get all the paper Bibles and then I would say, all right, uh, John 3:16, And whoever got it first would stand up and they'd read the verse and they would prove that they are better at finding verses in the Bible than their friends. Well, one particular Sunday I got up and I said, sword drill, Everyone got ready. I said, Matthew 18, 11. And all the pages were rustling. You could see their fingers moving at lightning speed. And this one junior hire pops up. And as they always do, they pop up before they've actually found it. You know, they're, and they're still searching. They're on the right page, but they're still searching for the verse. And so he's up there. And he's searching and he's searching and he's searching. he goes, something's wrong with my Bible. It's not there. Now, what he didn't know is I had set him up. You see, Matthew 18, 11, along with a few other verses in the Bible, in modern translations is not included. And for very good reason. Because as we have found manuscript evidence of the original uh, New Testament documents, we have grown in our understanding of what probably should be and what probably should not be there. Now, uh, I intentionally picked a, a verse that's omitted to bring up an issue that many Christians haven't really thought about. How is it that you got the translation of the Bible you hold in your hands? And how can you know, is it really trustworthy? Well, if you take the time to study it, you can actually find there is an incredible amount of reliability. You you should trust that you have all that God wanted you to have, that God truly has spoken to us and we can know what he says. And yet there are many questions that need to be answered if someone is to come to that level of certainty and certainly to be able to fend off the attacks of secular scholars who would try to undermine your belief. There's a New Testament scholar by the name of Dan Wallace. He believes the Bible is true and without error, but he has this to say about this issue of textual variation. He said, sadly, Tens of thousands of college students raised in a Christian home have abandoned the faith because of fear of embarrassment over these textual critical issues, especially because of one particular book by a guy named Bart Ehrman called Misquoting Jesus. In recent years, it's been estimated over 60% of the kids coming from Christian homes go off to college and leave the faith, most of them for these reasons. So it's a poor strategy to just pretend these things aren't here. Just sweep them under the rug and just pretend as if everything's all right. That's a very poor strategy. There are people that have made a cottage industry out of deconverting our kids with some knowledge that frankly isn't that hard for us to at least make them familiar with. Uh, I'll also tell you, it's not just about keeping your faith from being undermined. It's also to make you a more effective witness. Whether you realize it or not, if you're talking to your average unbeliever on the street, they have been influenced to some degree or another by a History Channel special or Dr. Bart Ehrman or some other skeptical line of attack against the Bible. And if you aren't at least familiar with the objections that are raised and the evidence that counters those objections, then you're not going to be as effective as you could be in sharing the gospel. So that's why this morning we're going to spend our time to look at why the Bible is reliable, the evidence for it, and we're going to p- spend a particular, te- uh, a particular attention to this passage of the woman caught in adultery as an example of how it is that this sort of work is done. We'll do it in four steps, take us through this, four steps. The first is the passage itself. I'll show you why I don't think this passage is originally part of John's gospel, Second, we'll look at the problem of textual variation, the problem of all these variants and the objections that are raised by skeptical scholars and how we can answer them. It will be the third section, that's the evidence. We'll look at why the New Testament is reliable and why these textual variants should not trouble you. And then finally, we will look at the message. We'll look at what this actual story says about Jesus And how it's so beloved because it rings true to other things in the Bible that are said about Jesus. So we'll see that four sections. Why the New Testament is reliable and why that's ultimately important. Because how the Bible itself is how we know of the grace of Jesus. Let's begin first, the passage itself, the the woman caught in adultery. Now, I haven't read it up until now, so I will read it at this point. Again, I, I don't think this is original to John's gospel, but I want you to at least be familiar with the story and the text we have. So John 7, starting in verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So so what do you say? They said to her to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, this is undoubtedly a very famous story about Jesus. My guess is a uh, favorite of many of us, even in this room. It's uh, touching. It shows us the grace and mercy of Jesus. And at the end of the sermon, we'll actually come back to the message itself. But I want you to notice, if you have your Bible, there, depending on what translation you have, it may have this section in brackets, Other Bible translations will have it with a footnote on it. Uh, Just about the only one that wouldn't have that would be the King James Version. Uh, If you take a moment to look at that footnote or the brackets, it'll say something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include this. Now, maybe you've never thought about why it says that, but it goes to how we got the New Testament documents that we call the, the Bible and how it is we know that they are trustworthy. Now, we don't have... The original documents that were written 2,000 years ago by John or by Paul or by Matthew. Now what we have are copies. And we have copies that were made under less than ideal conditions. We have, the, uh, there, it was a very difficult thing to make copies back before the photocopier. Uh, you had to do everything by hand. It was very expensive and time-consuming. Now, that's made even more difficult by the fact that the earliest Christians were on the margins of society. They didn't have much money. They were often being persecuted by the Romans and having to flee from town to town. Very often, they would have their carefully copied manuscripts burned when they were discovered by the authorities. Now, all this led to Christians spreading all over the known world at that point and bringing their Bibles or parts of the Bible they had with them. Now, as a result, that, that we have all these different sh- streams of copies that were made down through the ages that have been preserved for us in various places like Egypt and Turkey and Italy and uh, the, the, uh, places around the, the Mideast. Now, we have taken those documents and we've tried to figure out what is the closest we can get to the originals of what was written. There's a whole discipline of scholarly study dedicated to this. It's called textual criticism. It's just the idea of we're going to look at the evidence in the actual text itself, as well as the external factors like these different copies from different places we have. And we're going to compare them to each other. and We're going to try and figure out what was originally supposed to be there. Now It probably sounds complicated and boring, Uh, it it is a little bit of both, Um, but it's something you can actually do. I used to do little exercises with my junior high students to demonstrate how textual criticism was done, and seventh and eighth graders can do this sort of work. Guys with PhDs absolutely can do this sort of work. Now, all of that to say, you do not have to be some godless PhD in an ivory tower to believe that there are variations in the New Testament documents. There are lots of people, very smart people, godly people, that believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that have studied this and have this as their area of study and realize that there are variations between these documents. There's decisions you have to make along the way. And when you look at what these people say, particularly about this passage, the overwhelming majority say, The best evidence we have is that this should not be included. Now, I'm just going to give you a a list of four scholars that I found helpful. I I found over a dozen of them just in my own study this week. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson says, despite the best efforts of some to prove that the narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And the modern English versions are right to rule it off. Dr. Dan Wallace has the pithiest way of saying it. He said, this section is my favorite verse that's not in the Bible. Bruce Metzger, he was the foremost textual critic in the world when he was alive. He said, the evidence for the non-Johannine origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. Andreas Kostenberger, he says, as is widely recognized, the status of the pericope of the adulterous woman is, as, uh, 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 in 753-811 as an original part of John's gospel is highly in doubt. And I could go on. Uh, the overwhelming number of people that are trained in this field say, probably should not be in there. Now, I I won't go through all the reasons, but I'll give you some of the most compelling reasons that they have that have convinced me that it should not be there. Uh, The first that I think is the most convincing to me is the internal evidence. That is, if you look at the verse right before this section and the verse right after this section, And you were to read John's gospel as if this section were not there at all. It would flow perfectly. And if you've been with us, as we've been studying John 7 through 8. There's this cycle where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And Jesus says something. They misunderstand him. Jesus clarifies. They get upset. And the cycle continues again and again. Well, that is exactly what's going on back in verse 52. It's the aftermath of this back and forth of Jesus and the Pharisees. Then if you go to verse 12 of chapter 8 again, Jesus spoke to them saying, and it just picks up the cycle right again. It it actually, the the story of the woman caught in adultery breaks the flow of John 7 and 8 when it's inserted in there. That's a a good bit of internal evidence within the book itself. Now, in addition to that, there's external evidence, the oldest, therefore the manuscripts that are closest to the time when the originals were made, the, the oldest manuscripts we have don't include it. When it does show up, it doesn't always show up here. It shows up in different parts of John's gospel, the people aren't quite sure where to put it. Sometimes it shows up in Luke's gospel or in Mark's gospel. All this is to say that it's very likely that this wasn't originally part of John's gospel. And that's what leads to this question. OK, well, if this wasn't originally here, then what about the rest of my Bible? How can I trust that the Bible is reliable if such a big, important, famous passage is not included? That brings us to our second step, the problem of textual variations. The problem of textual variations in the New Testament. Now, when I was uh, in seminary, I was doing college ministry, and I noticed a pattern occurring. As students would come up through our high school ministry, If they went off away to college, within the first six months or so, I would usually get a phone call, either from that student or from that student's parents that are concerned about that student. They would get to their philosophy or their world religions class, and they'd be presented with things like textual criticism, and suddenly their faith became very shaky. The reason why is because of people like Dr. Bart Ehrman. Uh, Dr. Ehrman was an evangelical. He went through Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College. He studied under a Bible-believing Christian, Dr. Bruce Metzger. He studied textual criticism. But along the way, Dr. Ehrman left the faith, and now he's become very rich writing books convincing people not to believe the Bible. Some of those books called Misquoting Jesus, Jesus Interrupted, Forged, They have a a general line of attack that's common among them. It's that you can't really know what the New Testament said. It's not reliable, and therefore it must not be the word of God. Here's a couple quotes from Dr. Ehrman in his books. He says, how does it help us to say the Bible is the inerrant word of God if, in fact, we don't have the words that God inerrantly inspired? but only the words copied by the scribes, sometimes correctly, but sometimes, many times, incorrectly. Or another section, he says, it cannot be the word of God if God really wanted his people to actually have his words. Surely he would have miraculously preserved those words just as he miraculously inspired them in the first place. Given that he didn't preserve the words, the conclusion must be he hadn't gone through the trouble of inspiring them. So Ehrman's basic line of attack is this. He said, if God really did speak to us, he would speak to us in such a way that we would have the exact words he gave us. But the New Testament documents, they have these textual variations, lots of them. In fact, more variations than there are words in the Bible by a factor of three. Surely then you can't really know what the New Testament says. And so surely then this must not be the word of God. That's a very strong objection. And yet if you actually look carefully at the assumptions that Dr. Ehrman makes and the evidence itself, you'll see it actually falls pretty flat. And yet so often we just don't address it. We just kind of would rather not think about a technical kind of scary topic And the result has been disastrous to the faith as many. So as your pastor, I just can't in good conscience not go here. So bear with me. If this is not the most uh, pulse, uh, if this doesn't raise your pulse rate the most of any sermons I preach, that's okay. It's all right if this is not the most interesting thing in the world. Uh, My hope at the end of this is that if someone were to bring this objection to you, it would not be the first time you've heard it that at the very least you'd be able to say, oh, you know, I remember a sermon about that, and I remember it being not that big of a deal. And uh, whether you know all the answers off the top of your head or what resources to go to, at least you're not in that moment shaken in your faith. So let me provide some some of that foundation for you in our third section, the evidence of why the New Testament is reliable. So the way I'm going to break it out, I'm going to give you five reasons why you should not be troubled by these textual variations. Five reasons not to be troubled, and I'm going to give you three reasons why you can trust the New Testament at a a large scale, three reasons why the New Testament is reliable. So first, first reason why you should not be troubled by this is this really isn't about inerrancy. This really isn't about inerrancy. Now, Dr. Ehrman makes a very strong statement by saying that if God had really inspired the Bible, he would make sure that we have miraculously the exact words passed down to us. And if he didn't do that, then it must not be the inspired word of God. Now, Dr. Ehrman is sneaking in an assumption there that if God really did give us his words, that he must preserve those words as a photocopier would, otherwise God could not do this thing. Now, the problem, of course, is this would mean that God could not give us his words until very, very recently. Now, when we talk about inerrancy, we're not saying that the translations of the Bible that we bring to church with us are themselves free of textual variations. That's not what inerrancy is about. When we say inerrancy, we're saying that the Bible is true in everything it says and means to say. That what God says to us is utterly trustworthy. You'll be familiar with some of the verses that go along with this. Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verse 5 Every word of God proves true. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 2 Peter 1 20 through 21, knowing the first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever provided by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the Bible being the inerrant inspired word of God, what we mean is if we could get what John wrote exactly, there would be no falsehood whatsoever. There would be no errors whatsoever What we are not saying is that the translations in English we have are free from any textual variation. That's just not what we're saying. And Dr. Ehrman is smuggling in an assumption that no Christian scholar would ever say. Second, second reason this should not trouble you is it's old news. This is old news. Now, it may be the first time you've heard of it today, or maybe you've heard about it a lot up until now, but it is not news to Christians that have spent the time to study these sorts of things. Christians have been doing the work of textual criticism as f- far back as there have been differing copies of God's word that were circling around in the Christian community. Remember, the, the Christian community got spread out all over the world, but over time, people did start traveling, and we do have evidence of people Taking various copies that they had that disagreed along the way and trying to figure out which one was correct. They would write uh, comments in the margins saying they were doing these sort of uh, textual critical work. And, and that means that uh, the vast majority of Christians that have lived throughout, down through the ages, have used translations or copies of the Bible that have had textual critical work done on it. So whether we knew about it or not, it's not new. It's been going on since the beginning. Third reason, it actually isn't that impressive. That that, uh, shock and awe tactic Dr. Ehrman uses uh, with the number of textual variants, it really isn't as impressive as it sounds. Dr. Ehrman says there's 400,000 variants in the uh, New Testament, and that's true. Um, He says it's three times as many as there are words in the New Testament. That's also true. But what he's not telling you are some really important factors related to that the more manuscripts or the more copies you have, by definition, the more variants you're going to get. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing to have a lot of variants. That means you have lots and lots of copies to work from. Um, If you look at other books in the ancient world that we have less copies from, they have lower variant counts, but that means we have less certainty about what was actually said because we can't compare as many manuscripts to each other. Uh, The second thing is it's not really that, uh, most of them are not that impactful. Um, I'm holding in my hand a um, collection of the Greek New Testament that has textual critical data at the bottom. You won't be able to really see it, but uh, the, the bottom portion here lists out all the impactful variants that there are in the New Testament. The vast majority of variants are not that impactful. You can tell because of how small this book is, right? Um, The the 90 odd percent of them have to do with things like spelling. When you didn't have standardized spelling back in the day, there'd be all sorts of variations, the way people spelled words, uh, word order, things like that. Um, Very, very few of them deal with significant parts of the Bible, like what we have in front of us of John 8. Um, There are a few of those, but they're well-known, and they've been well-thought through up to this point. So that 400,000 number sounds really big and and scary. All it actually does is tell us we have a lot of copies to work from, that's actually a good thing. Fourth, you shouldn't be worried by this, because this is the boat that every single ancient book is in. We're in the same boat with every single book of antiquity. Until the printing press was invented and everything was done by hand, every single book we have copies of will have textual variants if we have more than one copy. It's just the way it works. Uh, Whether it's Plato or Homer or Josephus, uh, people don't have such uh, questions about whether we can understand what those people wrote, even though we have way fewer copies and much less certainty about the original texts of those than we do of the New Testament. So from a, just a basic historical perspective, the New Testament is in far better shape than any other book back before the 1500s. And fifth and finally, the reason not to be impressed by this is it doesn't change any major doctrine. Um, I, I told you there are very few of these variants have to do with big sections of the Bible. More, even more importantly than that, when they do have to do with something that uh, we'd say is core, like in this case, we have someone that's being forgiven by Jesus, there are always other sections in the Bible that teach the same things. So regardless of how you sort out the variants, you end up with the same doctrine being taught in the Bible. And you can see that based on the different translations you have. Whether you have a King James Version or an English Standard Version or a New American Standard, they all teach the same thing They teach about the same Jesus and the need for us all to find salvation in him. Okay, so uh, hopefully by now you're convinced the problem of textual variations shouldn't trouble you too much. Now, let me just give you three general reasons why you should find the New Testament to be reliable. The first is because the way the New Testament was transmitted to us. I, I call this decentralized transmission. Um, maybe you're familiar with a uh, work that came out a while back uh, called The Da Vinci Code by a guy named Dan Brown. Uh, He's not the only guy that does this, but sometimes people say, well, you can't really know what the Bible says because somewhere along the way, the Catholic Church or the Council of Nicaea, or there was some conspiracy where everyone grabbed up all the copies of the Bible and changed what it said to fit their agenda. Well, the way that the Bible was... Transmitted to us actually ensures that's impossible. Uh, remember I told you about that persecution and how that spread believers all over the known world, even from the days of the Bible itself. The beginning of James talks about the dispersion of believers all over the world. Now what that ensured is that there was no way for people to go around and gather up all the copies of the Bible that had been spread out. People were separated by Empires and wars and huge distances that were difficult to travel on foot. As a result, we have these different streams of copies that came down to us. You can think of it like a river that forks. The further and further down it goes, even though it came from the same source, the distance grows greater and greater between them. Now, that's a really good thing. This ensures that no one has been able to monkey with the text of the Bible. If they did, we can compare it with these other streams and figure it out very easily that something has gone amiss with one particular stream. Now, that's not the case with every religious text. If you're t- to talk with a Muslim uh, neighbor, their text of the Quran has a, 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 an event that happened called the Uthmanic Revision where they ran into the same issue. The, the Quran started to get textual variations. And so what they did is they gathered up all the manuscripts This guy named Uthman decided on the one they were going to go with, and then they burned the rest of them. Now, pretty hard to show your work when you have burned your notes. Uh, We don't have that problem. At the New Testament, we can compare manuscripts from different streams of transmission all over the world, and that gives us a great deal of certainty that no one has messed with what we have. Uh, The second reason you should trust it is something called the tenacity of the text. It's just a fancy way of saying that as their, the New Testament was copied, each successive copy would get a little bigger instead of a little smaller. Now, the reason why that's a, a, a good thing, I'll explain it in a second. The, the reason why it would grow is that the scribes were largely Christians. And no Christian wants to be the one that accidentally left off John 3.16, right? So if you're in doubt of whether a particular reading or sentence should be included or not, chances are, More often than not, the scribe would include the line rather than exclude it. And that meant with each generation of copying, the number of words, the size of the copies would grow. Now, as an illustration of why this is a good thing, imagine you are going in your attic and you pull out an old puzzle box. And it says 500 pieces in this particular puzzle. You pull it out. And you flip them all over, and as you set them up, you realize there are actually more pieces in this box than 500, right? Now, think for a second. Would you rather have some extra puzzle pieces that accidentally got mixed in to sort through, or would you rather have that box have too few puzzle pieces? You see, by having too many words, we're able to work through and compare and contrast and figure out which words were not original and get to the originals. If we have too few words, then we're just left in the dark to what it is that was actually missing. So the way that the copies were made and the tendency of those copies to grow over time, it actually gives us incredible confidence that we're not missing anything, that it's all in there somewhere. We just need to do the work of figuring out what should be included and what shouldn't. Tenacity of the text. Third, I think this is the most powerful of all, is that the New Testament has stood the test of time you realize that the vast majority of Christians that have ever lived have had less access to the Bible in less accurate forms, in a harder-to-understand translation, if they even had a translation in their own language. And yet people continue to be changed by the Word of God. They continue to walk with Christ And they continue to demonstrate the transformation that God's word has on a heart. We have never, no one has ever had access to more and more accurate translations of the Bible than an American Christian has. And so it's great irony that now more than ever we have doubt about whether we can actually know what the Bible says when we are more confident than ever in what the Bible says. Now, Brothers and sisters, I hope you are not discouraged by all of this this morning. Um, You actually have an incredible, incredibly accurate uh, understanding of what God's word was, how it was given to us, and most importantly, you can really know that God has spoken to you through the very words of the New Testament. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a student, I want you to make sure you hear this loud and clear. If you're going to go off to a college somewhere, uh, particularly a secular college, but sometimes even at Christian colleges, you will be confronted with this. And if you are not at least familiar enough to know that this is an issue and that it really should not undermine your faith, there are good reasons why you can trust the New Testament. Well, if 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 you don't at least know that much, then this will be a really hard thing for you to work through. I would much rather you work through it here in the context of the community of faith with people around you that believe the Bible than to go off and to have to give an answer on the spot to someone that does not believe the Bible is trustworthy. To all of us here this morning, I, I hope you don't feel like you have to be a textual critic to understand the Bible. The translations you have are excellent But if for some reason you are interested in doing more of this sort of study, uh, almost all this stuff is available online these days. They have gone and digitized all of the Greek manuscripts and the various other languages of manuscripts we have. You can go and find them for free on the internet. Um, If you are having trouble sleeping at night, I guarantee you this will do the trick. (laughs) Go sift through some of the papyri fragments and you will be asleep in no time. But um, there's nothing to hide here. Uh, This is all being done out in the open and has been for a very, very long time. So please don't get discouraged by something you see on the History Channel or some quote you read from Bart Ehrman or some other skeptical scholar. Um, if you do have specific questions, come to ask me. I have lots of resources, books you could read, specific articles. Uh, I'll just point you to one. There's a, in, if you have an ESV study Bible, there's a two-page article in that that does a great job of laying out all these issues and gives a little more detail than I went into this morning. But to all of us, we need to realize that with this great gift God has given us, a, a reliable New Testament with these abundance of riches of different translations that show us how we can actually apply this to our lives in words that are easy to understand, it comes with a responsibility. If we actually have the word of God, if we actually believe we can know what God said to us, then we have an obligation to both read it and to live it out. Well, I have left until last the actual content of the story itself. I told you at the beginning, I think this story is true. Um, And by that, I don't mean that I think it's intended to be in the Bible. I I think it was likely a story that was told by Christians so many times about Jesus because of the beautiful grace it shows us about him. It was a story so beloved by the Christian community that scribes wanted it preserved, didn't know where to put it, and so they put it in different places along the way, and and that's how it got preserved down through the years. And uh, what I want to show you is that this beautiful story about Jesus shows us the same thing that the rest of the Bible shows us. That Jesus is full of grace and mercy for justly condemned sinners. And his grace changes them to live a new life. Uh, We've already read the story, but you you probably know the shape of it. Jesus and the Pharisees have another run-in. Jesus has this woman who had been caught in adultery brought before him. It's interesting, the woman's brought, but The man that she did this with is not brought with her. They bring this woman forward, and they put Jesus in a tight spot. They try to hook him on the horns of a dilemma. They ask him, they say, Jesus, you know what the law says? We're supposed to stone a woman caught in adultery like this. What do you say? Jesus' options are on one hand to say stone her, uphold the law, in which case he would immediately be a target for the Romans, The Romans were the only ones that had authority to execute someone at that day. So if Jesus were to say the words, kill her, then the Romans could rightly come and arrest him and they would be done with their Jesus problem. It would also undermine his reputation as a friend of sinners, certainly. The other end of things he could say, let her free, forgive her. If he did that, then they would say, well, Jesus is disregarding the scriptures. He's clearly a false teacher. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus does some funny stuff writing on the ground. No one really knows what that's about. Certainly it caused a delay. And then he asks them one of those heart-probing questions that he loves to do. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In that statement, he reveals what the law was originally intending, It wasn't, he's not saying that you can't judge a person to be in sin in any sense, unless you are sinless. In the law, the person that was supposed to bring, was able to bring a charge had to be someone that was not guilty of the same crime themselves. And that person that brought the charge also had to be the first person to throw the stone, to start the execution. Jesus here challenges them, throws a gauntlet down, if you will, and says, all right, which of you is not guilty of the same thing? you go ahead and start us off. They all slink away one after another because in their hearts they know none of them is free from this sin of adultery. Now Jesus then turns to the woman and he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And then he responds with that famous line, neither do I condemn you. Go for now on, from now on sin no more. It's a beautiful story. I wanted to show you why it has resonated so much with the ring of truth in our hearts. It's because it's what the New Testament teaches us about Jesus and how he shows grace and mercy to sinners like us. All I need to do is go to one passage. I could go to a dozen, but one will be enough. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. There is now... Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Why do we love the story of Jesus and the woman in adultery? Because it shows us how justly condemned sinners find mercy and grace. And are set loose to live a new life for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's really important that you know that your New Testament is reliable not just as an intellectual exercise, not just to win an argument, but because the New Testament is how you know of the mercy and grace of Jesus for sinners like us. Let's pray.